welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. For three hours today, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has been hit by a barrage of questions by Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee about what they say is an anti-Trump bias at the FBI, the Justice Department, and Special Counsel Robert Mueller's team. Rosenstein defended all three and the scope of Mueller's investigation. Joining me is Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, Rosenstein was really firm in his defense of the Mueller investigation. Did you see Republicans making any headway in showing bias? No, not really. I mean, look, both sides had their political agendas to serve today. Democrats are trying to corner uh, the deputy attorney general in terms of whether or not he'd stand up to in order to fire Mueller. And Republicans were understandably trying to discredit the investigation in its entirety, or at least lay the groundwork for it to be dismissed as a political hackery when the report comes out. So I think mean, more or less, what happened today was just theater. Uh, neither side made any headway on that part. Rosenstein pretty much uh, brushed it all off. I don't think we have enough yet to really make conclusions about whether or not these texts between these two government officials reflects anything other than crude political commentary in an election that was filled with crude political commentary. There was there was high drama at some points. I want you to describe the special role that Rosenstein has with regard to Mueller because of Attorney General Jeff Sessions' recusal. Yeah, well, I mean, the Deputy Attorney General took the place of the Attorney General in this context because of uh, the Attorney General's role in the campaign um, and how he couldn't, he therefore was uh, could not be impartial in the context of the Russian collusion investigation. And that's brought a lot of fire and criticism to uh, the Deputy Attorney General because he's the one who authorized the special counsel. He's the one who is coordinating with uh, special counsel on the extent of the current investigation, which has not only gone after issues relating to alleged collusion, but has also targeted stuff like money laundering and lying to the FBI on peripheral matters that wouldn't necessarily be strictly and narrowly tied to that original core issue. And so that's brought up a lot of criticism uh, for the for Mr. Rosenstein from Republicans who are concerned they see the Mueller investigation kind of expanding beyond its original purpose. Both sides tried to dig into the specifics of Mueller's investigation and did not get very far. Republican Congressman Smith asked if the special counsel was authorized to look into the personal finances of Trump's children. And that's just what you're talking talking about, does that seem to be outside the bounds of the scope of his investigation? Oh, and that becomes a problem with we don't know what we don't know, because we don't know the details of what Mueller has or doesn't have here. It's hard to decide or conclude whether or not going after those finances would be legitimate. If you believe that there was some manner of collusion that included possibly the president and or his children, there was always the understanding that it might have something to do with the finances, that there was some kind of leverage or compromise that was tied to the Trump family finances. So if there is some evidence that would lead down that path, it would make sense to dig into those details and those very personal and private details. But because we don't know what Mueller has found in terms of whether or not there was anything along those lines, we don't know to what extent it would be appropriate. And I think that's what very much Congress was trying to get at today. And obviously, there was no reason that Rosenstein was going to divulge any of that in this kind of in the midst of an ongoing investigation. He kept saying, I know what's going on. I have a 
full, complete control over what's going on. It's my responsibility and I'm doing it. But he refused to answer also when he was asked, really pressed on whether the president had contacted him in regard to any pending investigations. And he was asked what the legal reason for his not replying was. And he obfuscated, is there any legal reason for him not to reply to that question by an oversight committee? Well, sure. For for no other reason than the fact that it's technically and possibly the subject of the special counsel's investigation in terms of possible obstruction of justice. And the deputy attorney general is himself a potential witness, so he wouldn't want to reveal those details one way or the other. He did provide, I would say, a very lawyerly answer in some context that he has not been ordered to fire Mueller. That doesn't necessarily, he has not been, you know, asked to give a loyalty pledge, but those are very narrow and narrowly framed answers. It could be, they could exclude an all number of things that could still be impermissible, even if not fitting with that narrow structure. So what he gave in terms of answers was exactly what you would have expected in this context, given the ongoing investigation. Brett, there's been a lot of focus by Republicans on the disclosure of these text messages between a top FBI agent assigned to the investigation, anti-Trump texts in exchange with another FBI official last summer. And yesterday, the Justice Department leaked hundreds of text messages exchanged between the two. Uh, Rosenstein was asked about it, and he said that there should be transparency, and that's why they release those text messages. But is that unusual in in an ongoing investigation to have text messages released? Very, very much so. I, I mean, I can't really think of too many examples of that in that kind of circumstance outside of someone getting access to it through FOIA, like we saw with parts of the Hillary Clinton saga uh, with the emails in the midst of the election. So it's one of those things of the Justice Department never talks about ongoing investigations unless the Justice Department decides it will talk about the <laughs> details of the ongoing investigation. It's the, it's the benefit of being the one with all the control is you decide when the exceptions apply. He was, certainly was in control today. Thanks so much for being here. That's Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. The verdict is in and no, you can't sue Donald Trump for tweeting that you're a real dummy and a major loser with zero credibility. That's what a New York appeals court ruled in the case of a Republican political strategist who sued Trump for defaming her after she questioned his fitness for office on television last year. Joining me is Josh Blackman, professor at the South Texas College of Law and author of Unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty and Executive Power. Josh, what was the court's reasoning here? So what happened was, after uh, uh, Sherry Jacobus made a few comments about Trump on cable news, Trump did what he always does. He started attacking her on Twitter. He called her a dummy. He said that she begged us for a job, but uh, the Trump campaign said no, and then she went hostile. So before President Trump's inauguration, she sued him in state court for libel, that is, for attacking her character. Um, Last year, shortly before the inauguration, the court dismissed it saying that the claims were a little bit too vague, that calling her a dummy and saying that she begged for a job wasn't really anything attacking her character. It was merely offensive. And the other day, the New York uh, uh, appellate court uh, affirmed that judgment, meaning that the case against Trump will not go forward. Did they also talk about this being more opinion rather than fact? That's exactly right. When you have a libel case, it's always a close call. Is this person saying a false statement of fact or giving merely an opinion? Um, and I'll, I'll read you the, 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 the tweet from the president. He said, quote, 
Sherry Jacobus begged us for a job. We said no, and she went hostile, a real dummy. Um, for whatever that's worth, and who knows what it actually means, he's not actually saying any false facts about her. He's merely asserting his opinion about her that he thinks she's a dummy. Certainly it's inflammatory, uh, but not defamatory. So I'll remember that. Uh, inflammatory, but not defamatory. But does this make Twitter a defamation-free zone, as the plaintiff's lawyer suggested? I don't think it quite goes that far. The uh, New York Appellate Court said that the, the statements here are too vague, subjective, and lacking in precise meaning to give rise to a lawsuit. So, for example, let's say that Trump went on Twitter and said that, you know, Ms. Uh, 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 J- Jacobus is a, is a convicted felon and that she, uh, she's, a, she's, a, you know, she, she's a sex offender and, you know, awful things. Those are false statements that are objectively false and can be verified. Had that been said on uh, a Twitter or Morning Joe or anywhere else, it could give rise to a libel action. What Trump does here is what he usually does is he uses these vague phrases without specifying what he actually means, and he lets his uh, his followers take it from there. Um, Jacobus's other point is that Trump incited a mob against her by basically attacking her. It opened her up to abuse in social media and elsewhere. Um, the court also rejected that claim. Trump is fighting another defamation suit by a former contestant on his Apprentice reality TV show. She claims the president defamed her by calling her a liar after she accused him of sexual assault. One of the arguments they're making, the Trump lawyers, is that the Constitution bars him from facing state court suits while he's in office. That didn't work for President Clinton in the Paula Jones suit. Is Trump likely to fare any better here? Well, there's a big difference. When President Trump was, I'm sorry, when President Clinton was sued by Paula Jones, he was sued in federal court. And the Supreme Court held that a sitting president could be sued in federal court while in office. The other case you mentioned against Trump was filed in state court. And there was a footnote in the Supreme Court's decision that says, we don't decide this issue of whether uh, a president can be sued in state court. Um, there's some serious separation of powers issues here of whether a state institution can actually bring uh, charges against the sitting president rather than a federal institution. Um, this is not a resolved issue. Um, uh, the Trump campaign, I'm sorry, the Trump administration has tried to dismiss this other defamation suit. Um, this will go up the ladder. Well, Josh, you are a scholar in executive power issues. What's your opinion about whether he can be sued in state court? Uh, my tentative conclusion is he should not be sued in state court, that if they want to bring this claim under Clinton v. Jones, they can bring it in federal court. Um, the, the, the claim would be completely actionable. Um, I don't know why they brought it here. Perhaps if it was more favorable form, but it's, it's problematic when state institutions can start uh, intruding on the executive power. There's some, there's some very weighty issues for why this is a bad idea. There are other forms available to, uh, to bring such causes of action. And briefly, he also uh, claims in the second suit that the speech was protected under the First Amendment. Would the word liar be equivalent or analogous to what, uh, what his other tweets said in the New York case? Well, liar is a little bit more specific because calling someone a liar, you can verify true or false. You know, we have fake news, but you can still say, is it a fact or not? Does someone give an accurate fact? And if you see someone as a liar, they committed fraud, and you prove, in fact, that the person says something correct, that could give rise to a libel action in the normal case. Of course, with the president, it's a different story in the separation of powers, but in the general sense, the word liar, words like fraud, 
if you want to criticize someone, you stay away from those words. This is a more complicated issue than most people think. Thanks so much for clarifying it. That's Professor Josh Blackman of the South Texas College of Law. An attorney for the political strategist says that she intends to ask New York's highest court to hear the case. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.